0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 5 for our sermon text. 1 Kings chapter five. We will read the chapter in its entirety. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Haram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Haram, saying, "You know that David, my father, cannot build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare." with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune, and so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name." Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Haram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Huram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. I will have them broken up there and you shall receive it and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Haram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Haram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Haram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Haram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month, in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who were in charge of the people who carried on the work, At the king's command, they quarried out great, costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Haram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. If we were to sum up the Bible... The centerpiece of the biblical narrative, how would you describe it? If you could summarize it in just a word or a phrase, what would it be? I think a good contender would be this, the dwelling place of God, that God is clearing a holy space to build a holy place to inhabit the midst of a holy people. So we take a step back and consider the grand narrative of the Bible, all 66 books, Old Testament and New, we find there being a grand storyline. The Bible both begins and ends with a temple. Eden itself was considered to be this arboreal realm atop of a mountain, according to Ezekiel, where man communed with God. And though the plot disrupted but not derailed continues, as man sinned against his creator, God did not leave man alienated forever. Though man was exiled on account of his sin from the presence of God, and the question is then raised, how can a sinful man dwell in the midst of the presence of a holy God, God in his mercy, even in the opening of Genesis 3, stoops to show mercy and draw sinners like you and me back to Himself. Like a grand symphony, the biblical plot advances in movements and phases in this crescendo that culminates in the dwelling place of heaven on earth. Even as the opening chapters of Genesis begin with God dwelling in the midst of a people He has made for Himself, so the closing chapters of Revelation focus on that same theme, that God inhabits a redeemed people where sin is struck down, where death is no more, where God wipes away the tears from every eye of those whom he has purchased by the very blood of his Son. And the people worship him all throughout all eternity. Well, here we find a significant chapter in the progression of redemptive history For the next four chapters, the focus is on building an earthly habitation for God to dwell in the midst of His people. And it fashions, in one sense, some sort of sensory overload. As we begin to take our time over the next four chapters and there is extreme focus on even the minutest detail in the construction of this temple. We ask ourselves, why? And what we'll see is so much even of the apocalyptic imagery found in the prophets concerning the day of Christ's return, the consummation of heaven and earth, the end of all things, find its significance, uses the next four chapters here as the lens through which we are to understand the culmination of all the promises of God. So we would do well to pay attention to how scripture understands the next four chapters of 1 Kings and here, 1 Kings chapter five sets the stage. It's an introductory chapter as it were towards the construction of the building place of God. And the topic is in one sense quite simple. Preparations for the temple are being made. And yet in the midst of all of this, we see front and center Solomon's place as king over and among the nations, a scene which also sets the stage for the inclusion of the Gentiles as they're invited to partake in construction of this dwelling place for the maker of heaven and earth, and yet this chapter also has a dark cloud hanging over it as it anticipates Solomon's treacherous rebellion that will thrust the kingdom into darkness. We'll see all of these things narrated in terms of this subtle downward spiral. Three particular sections I'd like us to give focus to. First, we'll call this rest. We'll see that in verses 1 to 6. Secondly, we'll consider the matter of labor in verses 7 to 12. And then finally, the matter of servitude in verses 13 to 18. Again, notice the descent here from rest to labor to servitude. The chapter here begins with a pagan king, Haram of Tyre, uh, coming to meet Solomon. Here is the ruler of the Phoenician Empire, an empire that is, as it were, kissing cousins with the later Carthaginian Empire. This is a part of a larger group of people that are known and renowned for their wealth, their opulence, their wisdom, and their timber. A kingdom known for the beauty of its trade, especially in wood. It's an irregular scene, though not unheard of thus far. Here is a Gentile king who comes to bless the people of God. We've heard this even as early as the book of Genesis. Remember God's promise to Abraham where he says, I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. And here we see Haram, who has already been introduced to us in 2 Samuel chapter 22. I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 5. As one of David's friends, even as David was uh, competing with others who tried to keep him from receiving the crown that had been promised to him, Haram, the king of Tyre, had proven to be David's loyal ally and friend during all of those years. And even as David had come uh, and and, uh, finally uh, taken his seat in Jerusalem, Haram had offered to build a house for David's God. And David said he could not do so because his enemies had not yet been defeated But what's rather striking here is that we have a Gentile king blessing not only Israel, but Israel's God. And he is being blessed in return. Here we see the promises of Abraham coming to fruition Notice here, Solomon is not conquering this particular foreign nation. This is not another example of Solomon's great army coming out and conquering another Gentile kingdom. Rather, here's a picture of a Gentile nation under uh, the auspices and representation of her king coming freely to worship the maker of heaven and earth as we read a couple weeks ago in chapter four, the people of all nations had come to hear Solomon's wisdom, even the kings of the earth. So here we find that King Haram appears before Solomon and Solomon speaks and Solomon says to Haram, the time has now come to make preparations for building a house for the Lord. Yet we have to ask why now? Why not under David? I think the text hangs on this question as we see here in chapter four. You see, in the ancient world before the temple to a deity could be built, its nation's enemies must first be destroyed. You even think back to the book of Exodus. Like so many of us, when we begin at the start of every new year, our Bible, you know, read through the Bible in a year plan, we do really well in Genesis. and We do really, really well for the first 25 chapters of Exodus. And then we hit Exodus chapter 26, and. From chapters 26 to 40, you kind of go, what, what kind of ending is this? All these great stories of you know, uh, uh, Egypt's enemies and or, or Egypt's gods being destroyed in 10 uh, repeated judgments and the nation being led out by a giant pillar of fire and a cloud and the Red Sea being split in two. And then the, the back half of Egypt ends sounding something like some type of ancient Near Eastern Home Depot honey-do list given this list of all these these uh, products that are to be built all the timber and, and all this focus on the minutia why is that and yet in the ancient world there's this this savoring on how the temple is to be built because this reflects the fact that the enemies of God have finally been destroyed Now that the gods of Egypt have been destroyed and Israel has been redeemed, a a tabernacle, a a dwelling place for God can be built and now this is a, a, a dwelling place, a tabernacle, a temple on the move. And as it comes to reside in Jerusalem, now has come for the next installment in this particular phase of redemption. And Solomon says, the Lord has given me rest from all of my enemies. Now the time can begin. For the building of the house of God and great detail just as with the book of exodus as it was given to the construction of the tabernacle here great detail will be given to the construction of the temple for reasons we'll consider in the coming weeks but here this is the crowning achievement this is the proof that God has in fact triumphed over all of Israel's enemies remember chapter 4 last week or a couple weeks ago Solomon's reign runs from the Euphrates River all the way to the Mediterranean, that of the great sea. It's the largest the kingdom will ever be under the old covenant, and yet marks the bounds of the very territory that the Lord had promised to give to Abraham through his offspring. Verse four, I have no more adversaries, Solomon says. Rest on every side, no adversary in Hebrew, no more Satans. The Lord has triumphed over the forces of darkness. He has triumphed over his foes. It is time for the Lord to enter into his temple that he may dwell among his people. But here comes the surprising turn. Here are Gentiles who acknowledge Solomon as the true king and they are now conscripted to join in this temple building effort. No Gentiles were conscripted in, conscripted in constructing the tabernacle, but now that the tabernacle is instantiated in a fixed place, the Gentiles are welcomed to flow to Zion, to participate in the completion of this great work. It's a theme that we see replete throughout the book of Kings, both first and second. As the Lord goes to the nations, the nations are drawn to Him. You think what happens towards the end of first Kings… As the nation rebels against its maker and the covenant curses begin to fall slow and steady beginning with a three-year drought, the Lord sends a prophet and yet that prophet doesn't go to any of the widows in Israel. But he does send a prophet, Elijah, to the house of a Sidonian, a Gentile widow. Fast forward to Second Kings, there are a host of lepers in Elisha's day, and the Lord heals none of the lepers among the tribes of Judah, but he comes and brings healing to the servant of a Syrian commander. There's a concern here, even in First and Second Kings, of the Lord's delight to bring in the nations, to show his favor on them as much as he's shown his favor on the house of Israel. So much of the past few chapters have shown this great concern, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in him the nations would be blessed And here we see like the turning on of a garden spout, the first trickle of the nations flowing to the Lord himself, the inclusion of the Gentiles. Hear how Isaiah himself describes the latter days, that it shall come to pass in those latter days, says Isaiah, that the mountain of the Lord himself shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above all the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Here we see as Solomon is enthroned and he uh, uh, is given peace on every side, the first fruits of the nations begin to come and worship the God of Israel. Here Haram comes and blesses Solomon for his wisdom. It's an idyllic picture again of Israel's golden age. The land is at rest and Israel is at peace with her neighbors. And so Solomon meets with Haram And he utters commands, and Haram joyfully obeys. This is not a picture of two partners working as co-equals, but more as that of a senior partner giving directions to a junior associate what it is that he is to do. And nevertheless, we see here the great honor that Haram has given to participate in the building of the temple to the one true God, and Haram joyfully accepts the task that is before him. Solomon points out that for all of their God-given skills and wisdom, not to mention their God-given natural resources, Tyre gladly brings it all to see that the Lord be given a house befitting the honor that is due His name. And notice here in verse 11, Solomon pays them for their labors. In fact, he treats them quite generously. Notice what he says to Haram. Haram. Name your price, and I'll pay it. Here's a blank check. For everything that you and your men are doing, I will compensate you for whatever your heart desires. This is not a picture of servitude yet. The work begins. Timber is prepared and shipped from Lebanon for the building of God's dwelling place, and it presents almost an idyllic picture, and yet there are dark shadows that loom on the horizon. There are cracks in the foundation. Imagine uh, with, me, with me, if you would, that you were out to uh, look for a new home, and you go to scope out a model home. I remember trying to do this a few years ago uh, in Oregon, and you go and look at these model homes, and everything is pristine, picture perfect on the inside. It's not the exact home that you're going to be moving into, but it is something that looks pretty close to it. And yet, uh, upon closer inspection, something seems to be off. The pictures are slightly off kilter. You might see a few cracks in the foundation. There's this vague, uh, kind of stale stench in the air. It's not overpowering, but enough to tell you that something is not right. I think reading these opening chapters of 1 Kings is something similar to that. Here we're given such a great and grand picture of the reign of the Messiah. And yet as we inspect carefully, there are certain things about Solomon's life that don't seem right. Even going back to chapter three, as Solomon appears before the Lord and and asks for wisdom and he says, Lord, I, I don't know how to govern these people. I am not wise enough to lead your people. I need wisdom and the Lord bestows it upon him and that's so wonderful and yet at the same time that very same chapter what is it that solomon does he goes and he marries pharaoh's daughter first kings chapter 4 solomon is wealthy beyond measure he has so many things the land is at rest so much gold People are paying such tribute to him. In fact, he has thousands upon, he just has thousands of horse stables. You think how wonderful that is with all those chariots. Except when you read the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17, that that's one of the three things that Israel's king was not supposed to have. And now we get here to chapter five. and We begin to see more cracks in the foundation On the one hand, Solomon rewards uh, uh, mightily the Gentiles for their labors in acquiring timber, but here in verse 13, the tone shifts. For Solomon conscripts conscripts forced labor within Israel to mine the stone quarries. He's paying the Gentiles freely, but for those within Israel, he's putting them to forced labor. This is no small problem. The language here of forced labor is the exact same language used to describe Pharaoh and the Egyptian taskmasters in the book of Exodus. In fact, when we make it to Rehoboam in a few chapters, Solomon's son, we find that the nation is quite unhappy with how Solomon has been treating them with all of this forced labor. More and more, Solomon will look just like Pharaoh. He might write a blank check to the Gentiles for their efforts, but for those within the, the house of Israel, they are conscripted, they are forced to do work, forced into labor without pay. Here now the words of Jeremiah, who says, "'Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages.'" Solomon might be wise in his dealings with outsiders, but he does not seem to be just with those within his own borders. Of course, on the one hand, this problem of conscripting labor from those within Israel is kind of an ambiguous phrase. Is easily remedied when we make it to chapter 9 because we find out that those within Israel who were enslaved this 1 Kings 9, verse 11, are not in fact Israelites, but the surviving Canaanites who had remained in the land. And we think, all right, good job, Solomon is off the hook. But it actually compounds the problem because Israel was specifically commanded not to enslave the Canaanites for this very purpose. Rather, they were to be put to death as a sign of God's judgment on a wicked nation. In fact, it's this very thing, it's for this very reason that the kingdom had been wrested from Saul's hands in 1 Samuel. Remember the story of King Agag and the Amalekites as Samuel the prophet tells under the Lord's instruction, he gives Saul the order to put Agag to death and all of the Amalekites and Saul of course, refuses to do so thinking that by his own human wisdom, he can present a wonderful and acceptable offering to God. And the Lord says, I demand obedience, more so than sacrifice, and for that reason the kingdom is stripped from, Solomon, or from Saul's hand, and yet Solomon's doing the very same thing here. He has not put to death the Canaanites within the land, rather he's conscripted them to forced labor, and yet for all of these things, I think there's something even worse that Solomon has done here in this chapter. You see that there in verse 12. It's a very good translation. Solomon made a treaty with Haram. Quite literally, Solomon had cut a covenant with Haram, the king of Tyre. And yet, listen to the words of Exodus 34. Watch yourself that you make no covenant, no treaty with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods. When we make it to Joshua 13, we find it's not only the inhabitants of the land that uh, Israel was not to make a covenant or treaty with, but also that of Sidon and Lebanon. Joshua 13, verses 1 to 7. And when we get to chapter 9, we find that as this continued covenant is renewed and continues to take place, this ongoing a partnership between Haram and Solomon, Solomon begins siphoning off cities and giving them freely to the king of Tyre, something that the king of Israel had no authority to do whatsoever. There are cracks in the foundation. We see that here in this particular uh, the the movement of this passage as he begins as as the author of Kings talks about the rest that the Lord gives Solomon to the the labor uh, uh, and uh, then from that to the forced labor the servitude it's almost as if there's these hints that there is something of a downfall that is coming and that we will see in later chapters But before we can go to that, we have to take a step back and ask this. I think this particular chapter forces us and directs our eyes to consider the question of royal greatness. There's much to commend this passage and much to commend in this passage as it becomes the prophetic paradigm for the reign of that Davidic king who would reign forever and ever. Even as the prophets pretend of that day when David's son would rule not only Israel, but all the nations, we see a glimmer of that here under the reign of Solomon. Solomon's reign serves, as it were, as a blueprint for the reign of Christ. But we ought not confuse the model home for the true building. We should never conflate the road sign for the destination. Here we begin to see the cracks in the foundation As Solomon's reign is characterized in terms of descent from rest to labor to servitude. And again, I think it forces us to ask that question, what makes a king truly great? We might be tempted to follow the world's pattern. What is it that makes a nation great? What is it that makes a king great? Perhaps uh, growing up in in high school, you went on one of these school field trips. Uh, Like your senior trip, where do you go? You end up going to Washington, D.C. to look at all the monuments. Nobody goes on a class field trip to North Dakota. Everybody wants to see the monuments that, that, that mark out, that, that, that put on grand display what makes a particular nation great. You think of the Hagia Sophia built under Justinian during the Byzantine Empire, or, uh, the, Mugh- or the Taj Mahal built in the 18th century under that of the Mughal dynasty. You think of Versailles uh, built under that of Louis the Sun King just outside of Paris. We might be tempted to follow the world's pattern and think it is those architectural achievements that make a man great. Certainly, these stunning architectural achievements magnify the king's honor. It might bolster his renown, and we might look at this particular construction project and think this is all about Solomon, but that's simply not the case. I think if our goal and our takeaway from looking at this is focusing on a the greatness of some type of architectural peace, then I think we've missed the point. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Do you think that you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? When he did that, it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and it was well. And is not this to know me, declares the Lord." Israel's temple was great, not because of its architectural splendor, however, because, but because it was the place where God dwelt, it was the place where He lived in the midst of His people, and is, His reign is a reign that is marked by wisdom and justice. Think think what the Psalms say, righteousness and justice are the foundation of Your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before You. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." Kings can have ornate monuments, but that is not what makes a king great. Church buildings can be beautiful, but that is not what makes a church great. Our task is not found in building a beautiful church building. The church's task is not found in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Those are misguided applications. Those are false starts. For sure, there's much symbolic meaning to be found in the design of the temple, as we'll see uh, in the coming weeks, but it was merely a road sign that points forward to the final destination, that of the habitation of a holy God in the midst of His people. Here, the road sign points us to particular features of what the Lord has in terms of his mysterious plan, that plan which is revealed through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is namely this. That God has not simply come to erect a temple in a small sliver of land in the Middle East. He has not come simply to be the God of one particular people group. But this is the God who is king over the nations. Even as Haram comes and uh, pays homage to Solomon's God, so too does this point to the fact that Christ has come to be king of the nations. It's the very point of Jesus' very first sermon uh, after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness as he goes to Nazareth and he, he comes and he preaches. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And everybody says, well, that's pretty nice. They kind of yawn and say, it's a good sermon, buddy. Isn't this the carpenter's son, by the way? And Jesus says, you know, uh, when there was a famine in the land for three years, the Lord didn't send his prophet to Israel, but to a Gentile. And with the Syrian, or with the lepers, the Lord came and healed a Syrian's servant and none of the house of Israel. And when he says that, it sends the synagogue into a furor as they try to throw him off of a cliff. Jesus then was pointing to the overarching narrative to 1st and 2nd Kings, and we see that narrative begin to play out here, that included in the purposes and plan of salvation, mercifully given by God himself from all of eternity, and includes people like you and me who have no right to be there. where we are welcome not on account of our last name, where we are welcome not on account of how much money we have in our bank account or what type of tax bracket we occupy or the, the network connections that we make or of our social standing. We are received because of one thing alone, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the friend of sinners here's the road sign that points us forward to Christ himself who is the habitation of God as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Of him who unlike Solomon here is one who is David's greater son in whom there is no shadow of turning, in whom there is no crooked picture frame, in whom there is no cracked foundation. When we consider his life and his earthly ministry, one in whom there were no dark clouds on the horizon that would besmirch his character For he is the very wisdom of God, the beloved son begotten from all eternity. And as he ascended on high, he has come to create a new temple, a temple that is found not in the construction of timber and cedar, but of living stones of people like you and me, who though were once darkness and dwelt in darkness have been delivered by the power of his son, called forth from the grave to walk in newness of life, that we might be part of his holy habitation as, me, as he is making a new and living temple that will cover the face of the world. And that is the picture here that First Kings 4 points us to. So let us give thanks to God for all that he has done for us, for the great mercy that he showered upon us in the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. A gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we pray that You would lift our eyes to heaven to consider Christ and all of His beauty and all of His glory, uh, that we might truly uh, recognize that it is not on account of any righteousness that our works have accomplished, but on the sheer mercy of Him who beckons to sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, to come to taste and see that the Lord is good. May we taste and drink deeply of the fountain and rivers of grace,